0: Welcome to The Growing Edge, a podcast to explore how life forever invites us to grow into new challenges, new adventures, and new opportunities. I'm Parker Palmer.
1: Hi, and I'm Carrie Newcomer, and you're invited to join us here, Growing Toward the Light, even in times of darkness. To the words and how they between us, and to us and how we live. Well Parker I've been looking really forward to this podcast episode Um, and this one we'll be talking about the place where the personal and the political meet at the growing
2: edge.
0: Exactly and I've been thinking that you know one of the first things we said about this project was that this growing edge notion was open to the personal the the professional or work-related and political growing edges and I think this month, we, we felt moved to go directly to the political since the podcast will, will air just a few days before the midterm elections. And, of course, that might lead mm-hmm. to a partisan or ideological discussion that's full of critiques and accusations, but that's not what we want today. There are plenty of places on, online to to exercise that voice. What What we'd rather do is to raise a more personal, a more inward question about democracy and about our our role in it as citizens. A very important question, I think, for November of, yes. of 2018, when uh, no matter what the outcome of the midterms, these, these issues about democracy and citizenship will continue to be very much alive. So we were inspired in, in this by a quote from... Terry Tempest Williams, the great writer, who says, the human heart is the first home of democracy. She says, the heart is the place where we hold the questions that are key to the health of our democracy. Can we be equitable and generous? Can we learn to listen to each other more deeply rather than just throwing our opinions and beliefs at each other? Can we hang in with each other across all that divides us trusting each other to work our way toward a more perfect union together? Those are Terry Tempest Williams' very, very good questions that I think are more formative for citizenship than whether we know the date of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution and who wrote it and where. Mm -hmm. So so our growing-edge question is this, very simply. What can we do? Inwardly and outwardly, to make our hearts large enough to hold both the demands and the promise of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. What can we do inwardly and outwardly to make our hearts large enough to hold both the demands and the promise of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people?
1: And I I like the phrasing of that. what are the demands and the promises? Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about personally and also in conversation with others is, um, you know, in times of political trouble or troubling times, um, we're asked to be better people than we ever thought we would need to be, you know. And that's, hmm. and that's something I, I think about a lot, that I'm, I'm being asked to be a better person than I thought I'd have to be. Um, yeah and 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 that's a challenge and that is a challenge and to not give in to the politics of rage or the politics of fear or the politics of hate or the politics of despair what is it that I have to contribute to the community that comes from my heart
0: yeah exactly i I, I really like that insight a lot that that while this is a very difficult time and um, it's a time that that calls out the best in us if we're willing to open to that. And I'm thinking, even as you speak, Carrie, that it's no accident that Abraham Lincoln talked about the better angels of our nature mm-hmm. under conditions of extreme duress in this society, yes. the, the Civil War, where three quarters of a million of Americans killed each other uh, over a fairly short period of time. You know, we're not the first to notice that stressful times have the capacity to to call out the best in us. There's one, as we get underway, there's one piece of brush, I guess, a very big brush pile I'd Mm -hmm. like to kind of clear momentarily. Yeah. Because I know that some people will rightly say, well, well, what about when you hear really racist, really uh, misogynistic, really anti-immigrant statements that are outright cruel homophobic statements that are outright cruel are you supposed to just sit still and take that in great question and my answer to that just again to clear the way we, we don't need to dwell on this is no i don't feel called to sit and just listen as if as if my silence were approval um Uh, my feelings get riled at that point to the the point where I've needed a kind of formula and I've landed on one that has worked for me. So when somebody who doesn't know me and who doesn't know my beliefs says something racist, homophobic, misogynistic, anti-immigrant in my presence, I will say very simply and as calmly as I can, you need to understand that what you just said hurts me personally, because you're talking about my friends. You're talking about people I love, admire, and care for. And you need to understand that that has a painful impact on me, the person you're looking at at this very moment. And and that has a really interesting effect. I'm not asking this person to change his or her mind about someone who's not there. I'm asking them to look me in the eye and come to terms with me as someone who feels very much implicated in, involved with, and committed to whoever it is that this person has just disparaged. So I think in, in a way that doesn't throw gasoline on the fire, that's also a way of not giving tacit approval through silence
1: yeah and i and i think there's a um uh, there is a nuance to that and and uh a thoughtfulness and mindfulness that has to go into the process you're talking about because um you know i have this sense that when you speak honestly and from your heart and say that comment hurts me personally hurts me um then the conversation has to go heart to heart again. Yeah, it's yeah. not um, something that's just out there in the ether, or it's not some kind of theory or uh, a buzzword or a buzz phrase. Because a lot of times that happens. There's a phrase or a buzz phrase that is just getting tossed around.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, someone told me once it, it was just, and it's really stuck with me, this idea that if you start your conversations at dogma and you go down, theory, buzzwords, you know, us and them kind of talking. If you start there and you go down, um, you get Mm -hmm. stuck immediately. There's absolutely nowhere to go. But if you can find out where we share something at the heart level, you know, what Mm -hmm. is our most beautiful shared values here? At that point, at our most beautiful shared values, you know, how can we take action there? Take action Mm -hmm. there first, you know, mm-hmm. then you have a conversation, then you have some place to go, uh, mm-hmm. but if you're just kind of going buzzword down, you get mm-hmm. stuck immediately. And so, what you're talking about, I think, brings it back into the heart realm, back into the dynamic of of human human beings, and not mm-hmm. theory.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, you've just you've just said something that reminds me of something very very important, which is that. I have to absolutely mean it, sincerely from my heart when I say something like that. Yes. Um, I'm thinking back on this this word I used, formula, and maybe I misspoke when I used that word because, for me, that that statement isn't formulaic. It's just that I, in the heat of the moment, I need to have something at hand mm-hmm. that expresses my true heart, and and between those moments, I need to be cultivating the heart that can speak those words sincerely um, which isn't terribly difficult for me because I do in fact have friends in all of the communities that are under attack and I mean what I say from from my heart and I, I have to honestly say that you know while I totally agree with you that coming down from abstraction into heart talk and into the personal story is more likely to lead to a conversation Than throwing our convictions at each other, it's also true in my experience that when I've said what I said a few moments ago to a person who's uttered something that I find odious, um, it's often a conversation stopper.
1: Yeah, that's true. And
0: and that's okay with me because I feel like I, I have witnessed to my truth and I have left that person with something to think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, many times people who say these things which are totally thoughtless things things unfounded in fact things that are just parroting ideological statements from one place or another they're not capable of responding in the moment to what i've said but they're unlikely to forget that moment real soon
1: yeah okay i'm from the midwest and There's this thing in the Midwest about being nice, Um, (laughs) you know, being a nice Midwestern woman. And heaven forbid you should do something that would inconvenience someone or make them uncomfortable. Um, And so I think what you're talking about is a real decision. You know, it's a really conscious choice to say, okay, by nature, I'm just not one that gets up in people's faces. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that idea of paying attention to my heart and speaking not out of anger, but out of truth, out of my deepest truth, uh, even if it is a conversation stopper in that moment, it may be what, was, what needed to be said and what needed to be processed um, between the two of us.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely, and since I'm a Midwesterner too, uh, who's you know who was formed or deformed in the culture of nice, uh, Just depending uh, on how it, you look it. at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's Minnesota nice, there's Michigan nice, there's Wisconsin nice, there's Indiana nice, but they're all the same nice. Uh, don't make waves is what they are. It, you know, it, it it's it's good for me to remember that it's not nice to let an insult stand. It's not nice to let a slander stand. It's not nice to be silent in the face of cruel and put, statements that might lead to evil acts. And, and so I think for some of us, nice people who don't like to get in other people's grills it's important to redefine nice. Yeah. Maybe it's important, you know, to have a friend from New Jersey who can teach us the other part of that <laughs> paradox.
1: Yeah, I have one. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. This is how you do it. <laughs> and that's great. I mean... Um, but I, I just I threw that out there because it, it uh, there are nuances to it. We're human beings, and there are nuances to this that we're wrestling with. And that idea of being a better person than I'd ever thought I'd need to be.
0: Um, yeah, I, re- I really like that. So let me let me take the question one more step. And this is an honest, open question because yeah, I know I'm wrestling with this. You're wrestling this with this. We're all wrestling with this. What do what can we do what what do we do you and I do day by day or week by week or month by month or when we get around to it to help form the heart our hearts in the way that Terry Tempest Williams says they need to be formed Um, you know she I think she's on to something very very important because if you look at political movements ranging from democratic movements to fascist movements what you find is always efforts to form the human heart in a way that that makes it available for anything from democracy to fascism. And I would call the fascism a deformation of the human heart. Yeah. But sh- Terry Tempest Williams is saying, for a democracy, the heart needs to be formed in a way that Um, that holds democracy's key questions. Can we be equitable and generous? Can we listen to each other rather than just throwing our beliefs at each other? What do we know out of our own experience um, about the formation of our own hearts and, and how that's happened either in the larger society or in our own personal practice?
1: Yeah, that idea of enlarging our own hearts in this. Uh, in Quakerism, there's, a, there's a, a line or a phrase um, to hold it up to the light. You know, when mm-hmm. you don't know about something and you're trying to figure out the validity of something or the, the, the shape of something, if you hold it up into the light, you know, into the mm-hmm. light of all that I, I know to be true and equitable and beautiful and life-giving, if I hold it up in that light, how does it, how does it pan out? Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's one of those uh, litmus tests. How does that look when it's really put into the light of those kinds of of values and ideas? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm, I'm asking myself, so how do I hold it in the light uh, in a way that goes beyond metaphorical? Mm-hmm. And the first thing that came to me was. Is, an effort to put myself in someone else's shoes, yeah. um, which which especially those who are who are being marginalized, who are being disparaged, who are being dismissed, whether that's women, or immigrants, or people of color, or members of the LGBTQ plus community, to put myself in people's shoes and ask myself how I would feel if I were there, and I know the answer. I'm a white straight, male, upper middle class, well-educated, the kind of person this society was made for. And I need to not have illusions about that and and understand that my experience is not the experience of the people I've just named. You know, just to say the obvious, standing in another person's shoes is really aided and abetted if you know, personally know, people who are in those shoes. (laughs) and you can learn from them what is it what is it like i mean i've learned a lot from you in the last month or two about how it feels to be in a woman's shoes during this this time um and with all that's been going on in in relation to the supreme court and a lot of other things i mean that's that's just the latest manifestation Mm -hmm. Um, of the kind of misogyny, misogynistic impulses that so many women not only feel at this time, but have experienced yeah. in their own lives.
1: Yeah. One of the things that we were talking about the other day, this is just a little shift, is uh, about holding also this idea that in a democracy, there's probably going to be about of the people on either side of the spectrum who will probably never have a conversation. That conversation is just going to be too difficult or impossible to have. But in a democracy, there's this range of people, anywhere from 70 to 60%, who um, hold enough in in common as human beings uh, that they can have a conversation and that. That there's possibility of the dynamic kind of growth that can happen in a democracy. You know, when this country and this democracy was formed, we the people only meant uh, white men who had land. That and they were were,
0: were were powdered wigs. Yeah, that
1: they, they were wealthy uh, men who had who had land, and that was we the people at that point in time. And it's been an incredible thing that this democracy has. Um, over the life of this democracy, that we the people um, enlarged as and people enlarged their hearts enough to welcome that change, that or or um, wrestle that change. You know, okay. So now it's people who aren't wealthy who have mm-hmm. don't have land. Now it's um, people who uh, are not wearing powdered wigs or uh, Caucasian for the other half, the entire half of of the country with women, uh, now they're we the people too. Mm. So, it, and, it's, and it's been hard won, and it's been really um, a painful process at times. But what that says to me is that it's possible and that our expansion um, of we the people and the expansion of our democracy indicates an expansion of, uh, of the human heart, um, and how people are able to hold that.
0: Yeah, and you've, you've, in saying that, Carrie, you've just given me uh, another insight, as you often do, into how I can care for my own heart. Um, I, and a lot of people I know who, who share my, my desire for a better society, a better America, a better world, we break our hearts a lot on trying to reach out to the, the 15 to 20% on the far left or the 15 to 20% on the far right, who simply aren't, will never be able to have this conversation. So a good working question for myself is why can't I focus more clearly and consistently on that 60% in the middle who are capable of this conversation because in a democracy, 60% is more than enough to make a difference. But if I keep breaking my heart on reaching for the extremes, I, I'm engaged in some sort of form of self-flagellation hmm. that, that, uh, that eventually will plunge me into despair because I'll feel like a failure. And, and I'll my anger and hatred will grow because it will start to seem to me like nobody in this country is sane, and that's not true. Um, I I know people of the other party than the, the one to which I don't belong, who are totally sane, with whom I can talk. So why not have more of those conversations and see where we can get?
1: You know, I think there's also a, a longing, you know, in terms of how traveling around the country and talking to people and... You know, one of the things I'm sensing and experiencing is this kind of longing, longing for the acknowledgement of our good intentions and our good hearts. You know, there's this demonization right now going on of the other. And, you know, if you're in that party, you're bad. If you're in this party, you're good. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you're on this side of this issue, you're a bad person, you're a good person. And it just, there's this demonization that's going on, which it makes that divide, that divide that we're, t- we're trying to, to bridge, it makes that divide even, even more uh, difficult to bridge. And there are a lot of people in that 60% who don't agree with me on every issue uh, and some in really important issues for me. Um, I can acknowledge the goodness of their hearts and mm-hmm. the nuance of who they are as human beings. And go from there. You know, if I start mm-hmm. if I start there, then again that conversation, that uh, ability to find our bridges, to find our way forward, uh, is is more possible. But as long as we're in this politics of of demonization, and <laughs> even within each political party, you end up with this like you know the circular firing squad where people are like mm-hmm. getting angry at each other in terms of nuances mm-hmm. of of differences in times when emotions are high and the stakes are high, you know, I think that happens even more. But if I can just acknowledge, you know, the goodness of someone's heart and the goodness of their intentions, mm-hmm. um, that that helps with the conversation for me.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And the only thought I would add to that or sort of supplement that with is that I think a lot about something that I call diagnostics.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, I'm I'm very aware that if, if I go to my doctor and she makes uh, a mistaken diagnosis of my condition, mm-hmm. then we're gonna we start moving toward a mistaken treatment that that may actually make me sicker rather than yeah. weller, mm-hmm. if weller is a word, and it should be. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going with it. <laughs> you're going with it all right <laughs> so, but I so can't all spell. is all is weller yeah, all shall be weller that's what Teresa of Avila should have said anyway back to my main point <laughs> <laughs> correcting correcting my 80 year old tendency to wander off the trail from time to time um in as we look at each other there's this th- th- these diagnostics are going on all the time mm-hmm. and and one diagnostic the most popular diagnostic these days is this person who disagrees with me is an evil person
2: mm-hmm.
0: and and therefore i cast this person into the outer darkness well there there are other possibilities as you know i uh, some years ago i started calling the politics of rage yeah. the politics of the broken hearted yes Be- because if you if you diagnose wh- what what you're looking at as rage then the treatment is an effort to contain anger, which is where the whole democratic process begins to break down. But if, if I can see that behind a lot of that rage is, is heartbreak, yeah. the heartbreak of, of people who, for example, in 2008 and the, and the next few years, lost their homes, lost their jobs, lost everything they had, lost a sense of future for their children. I mean, that's, that's heartbreaking stuff. It, it strikes the human psyche at every possible level of vulnerability. And, and if, I, if I can see the heartbreak behind the rage and start speaking to that, they, these people felt abandoned by both political parties, by all political positions and ideologies. Mm-hmm. And they aren't mistaken in that. Um, the, you know yeah. the, the the governmental process is, has not served anyone well for quite a long time except the uber rich and and if i can understand that if I, if I can in that way get inside their shoes and move toward them in ways that honor that heartbreak i might be able to make some some progress but that means yeah. to take it back to myself mm-hmm. that means making room in working with my own heart, to get beyond my desire to defend myself against that which I find threatening, heartbreak I understand because I've had plenty of it myself, and it's it's part of the human condition, and it's part of what allows me to say to another person, with whom I may differ, we're in this together. We really, really are because we're both heartbroken people. We may be heartbroken about different things, but we can at least join together in, a, in empathy for each other's heartbreak, right?
1: Yeah, and at the same time, you know because these are emotional times, they're they're dangerous times in, in my estimation. Um, when you know some of the very important ideas of the kind of democracy that Terry Tempest Williams is talking about um, are being eroded in some ways. At a time like this, you know, I've also had to discern when I walk away that sometimes um, it is not the time for me to engage in this particular conversation. You know, and and that, again, that idea of being a better person than I ever thought I'd need to be. And and that also means knowing myself well enough um, in my heart to say, this is not where I'm going to be effective at this moment. Um, Mm -hmm. And knowing when to walk away, uh, knowing... Um, you know, this is this is a conversation that's not going to go anywhere. Um, yes. So, um, and I think that's another thing: uh, looking daily for what it is that I can do to contribute to the kind of democracy that Terry Tempest Williams was talking about—about about generosity and being equitable and listening more deeply, hanging in there, you know even when it's difficult. Um, you know, I I think, you know, some of it is finding my own personal way of contributing to that. You know, what's my piece of the puzzle here? And I think that's one of the questions that a lot of people are, are trying to discern right now. It's like, you know, what is it that I have to offer in this conversation? What do I have to offer in terms of uh, a democracy that that continues to expand and and open our hearts instead of mm-hmm. creating uh, a society where we become more and more closed more and more divided um, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's going to be different for each person and i and it brings it back to the growing edge idea that mm-hmm. what is my personal growing edge and and how does that personal growing edge meet political and community um mm-hmm. And you know that's it's something that each person has to ask and you know do that soul searching for themselves.
0: Hmm. And it, you know, the, thank you for mentioning the growing edge again, uh, <laughs> the flag under which you know that we fly over what we're doing here. But a, a, a <laughs> there good, it is. a good, re, a, a good <laughs> reminder to me of context and the image as you used it, Carrie, brings to mind the fact that a growing edge is not only. A place of potentiality for each of us it also demarcates a limit it's like they say don't run ahead of your breath or don't get ahead of your skis my growing edge is full of potential but there's it if I try to go beyond it before I've grown there before I'm ready to be there Um, I'm going to start doing some damage to myself or to other people because I don't belong there yet. So yeah, there are conversations you need to walk away from. There are times you need to walk around the block to avoid that encounter. And I I think part of heart care is to realize that I, I can't be all things to all people. And and I don't need to be all things to all people. What, what I need to be is, is what I can be as much as I can be on the growing edge of my life in those situations where I, I feel I can legitimately say somehow I belong here. And, and that may, may be in a contentious conversation, but if, if I'm there with a sense that I belong here, I'm much more likely to hold my equanimity. Mm-hmm. I'm much more likely to be able to say, you need to understand that what you're saying is personally hurtful to me, rather than lashing out with some kind of expletive uh, mm-hmm. that just curses the speaker and destroys the the relationship.
1: And I think, too, you know, kind of, that digging into um you know I, the idea of our our piece of the puzzle in all of this you know we we can do a lot of things. I mean, we are uh, human beings with opposable thumbs. We're pretty clever. we can do a lot of things in our life, and we can learn how to do a lot of things, but our most potent activism generally arises out of the things we love most deeply and truly um mm-hmm. And so that that will be, you know, for each person to look at. You know, I have this great uh, love for healing. I have this great love for. Um, I tell a funny story sometimes. I have a friend who is a uh, an accountant, and bless her heart, she when she's she loves being an accountant, and she tells me she's actually told me that when. She gets to the end of the columns, and they all line up, and they're all perfect. She gets giddy, and she like kind of hops around <laughs> in her seat a little bit, and and gets like really happy. And I'm like going, "Oh, this is really good. Good for you. <laughs> you <Yeah>. go <laughs> right. for it."
2: Like, right.
1: um, by nature, it's something that just makes her happy, and um, uh, and over the years, I've known her to do uh, accounting for nonprofits and for people who may not have uh, the resources at that time to get good um, accounting or, or even consultation on how to do things in a way that you know keep them organized and on track. But it comes out of something she loves and makes mm-hmm. her happy. Mm-hmm. And there's right. a, and there's a great potency, there's a great potency to the, a, a gift like that.
0: Yeah, um, Absolutely, absolutely. You know? I, I need to have a talk with her because my checkbook hasn't made me happy <laughs> for, for 50 years. So someday, someday. But you know, there's another clue in that, Carrie, I think, that's important in this conversation. And that has to do with not only staying close to what bring, what I love, and what therefore brings me joy and allows me to offer joy to the world. But also, asking other people what they love. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: in, yeah. In, in contentious conversations, I, I've sometimes found that, that I can change the dance by, by, rather than talking about environmental policy or you know, policy about whatever, this or that, by, by saying, what is it you love most in life? What, what do you most care about? Let's talk about that for a while. And when people start talking about, I love my children and I love my grandchildren, to listen to that, to appreciate that, to understand that. It, for one thing, it helps me refocus on the humanity of the person I'm talking to, because I love my children and grandchildren too, and I want the very best for them. And once that refocusing has happened, it might be possible to turn the conversation to, what kind of earth do you want to leave for your grandchildren? You know, I would like to leave an earth where the air is breathable and the water is drinkable and the fields are arable and yeah. there's, you know, there's, there's enough for them to eat and there's wilderness for them to enjoy. I, I don't know a whole lot of people who would say, nah, I want my grandchildren to live in, in, a, in a desert across the, the United States where you can't breathe the air or drink the water, you know. They, they may go back to saying, well, jobs are more important than, than the environment, but once you've changed the focus to their grandchildren,
1: yeah, what do you love?
0: Like? My experience is that not always, but often, there's there's at least a slight refocusing of the conversation.
1: And I think you know that uh, it, uh, Krista Tibbet talks about love as public policy. What would love look like as public policy? What does that look like as public policy? What does taking care of one another and hospitality and generosity and kindness look like as public policy? I think those are really good questions to ask mm-hmm. one another. And I also think about the other side of that. And, um I was reading some Howard Thurman the other day, and he was talking about violence and hatred as being, yep, they're forms of resistance, but they're probably the least effective form of resistance. Mm -hmm. And you can't contain it. You can't contain hate in a pinpoint kind of laser way. If you start saying, okay, this section I hate, I hate this section... You know, mm-hmm. it starts spilling out into places where you never expected or want, maybe even wanted it to go. So, that idea of looking at that as being a form of resistance, but probably the least effective form. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that I, I really believe that love, you know, these, these foundational things that being equitable and generous and a little bit of human kindness you know, mm-hmm. these, these are the things that you want to expand. You mm-hmm. know, like if mm-hmm. love expands, that's a good thing. <laughs> you
2: know? Yeah, it's,
1: if yeah hate, right. If hate expands, um, I don't know if I really want that to expand in my life and in my heart and in my community. No, I don't. Right. But I would right. really, if, if the result of me approaching this is what does love look like as public policy and that expands, I'm, I'm just fine with that expanding.
0: Or, or if not as public policy, at least as a public ethic, yes. which mm-hmm. is the yeah. language that our friend Valerie Carr uh, of the Revolutionary Love Movement yes. uses. Mm-hmm. What, what, what does love look like as a, as a public ethic? Yeah. And I really urge people, and I know you urge them too, to tune in to the Revolutionary Love Movement, which they can get mm-hmm. to, as you can get to all things by Googling it and <laughs> yes. signing up for their, for their newsletter and signing their declaration of revolutionary love as a public ethic. Uh, Valerie Carr, K-A-U-R, this Sikh religious leader who's a lawyer and a powerful writer who's going to be out with a book on this subject within the next uh, 18 months or so, is somebody well worth knowing about yeah. through that revolutionary love website. So urge yeah. people to to go there and take a look. To, to bring it back, to myself, and mm-hmm. I, I know that what I need to do to move in the directions that you're talking about, towards kindness, towards love, towards compassion, no war ever solved a problem finally. It simply led to an, the same war in another form.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, for me, one of the most his, important historical reminders is we killed Hitler, but we certainly didn't kill Hitlerism. Which we see now arising all over the world, including in in this in this country. but what i what I need to do to even begin to move in the direction you're talking about is is to s- somehow get in charge or to take command of my desire to win the argument mm, um, of yeah. of my desire to go at war, to war, yeah. right with with my enemies.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If I've, if that's how I frame the situation, then I'm doing no better than everybody who has ever declared war thinking that it would end a big problem. And I, I want to confess right now that feelings run high, yeah. uh, especially in this moment, and that I am frequently tempted to, to go to war. I think a lot of people are, and that because we have a lot of warfare in this country, families are divided, neighbors and friends are divided, they, they can't even talk to each other anymore. You, you hear heartbreaking stories along these lines yeah, it's
2: true. constantly.
0: My piece in that is that I, I have to understand something really, really simple, that it's more important to be in right relationship than it is to be right hmm. and huh. and that that's not because that, 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 that i want to be very clear i'm not urging anyone to give up on the notion that there's right and there's wrong mm-hmm. there's good and there's bad yeah that there's there's love and there's there's evil um that's not my point my point is that if if we can't create relational containers yeah. at least among that sixty percent in the middle that, that hold those conversations about the difference between right and wrong, between good and bad, then we will make no progress at all, because it, it takes a relational container to hold these complex problems and to start taking steps towards that public ethic of something that, that at least resembles love much more closely than, than what we've got going today. And for me, that's a big inner struggle day by day. I mean, I write about these things. I think about these things. I believe these things, but every day I have to wake up and struggle with them all over again.
1: And, you know, and that's a daily practice for me. I I don't want to say that's for you or for anybody else, but, you know, but for me, that's a daily practice. Um, You know, it's like, it's like the, you know, the quality of forgiveness. There's some things you forgive and you forgive them once and it's done, you know,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but there are some things you have to forgive again. Every time you think about it, you know, that kind of attitude for me applies also as the personal meets the political, you know, what am I rededicating myself to each day? uh, Every time I think about it, there are things Mm -hmm. that have happened uh, in, in recent days and weeks that I have to breathe with every time I think about it. And that's just the reality of it for me as, as an individual here and with how I view what love would look like as public ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I do that, I, I rededicate again. And what mm-hmm. does that mean? How do I hold this in the light? What is my mm-hmm. gift here? And what can I contribute here um, to what will bring in the better, kinder world? I, I, yeah. one of the things that we were talking about the other day is that sometimes frames help me. I, I, maybe that's because uh, I'm a writer and a music this idea of a frame. If I can, if I can create a frame with it, that I can work with it, then you know there's there's a way forward for me sometimes. So I need to find my frame. And one of the frames I've been holding on to lately is that the better, kinder world is here and it's coming. It's here already and it's coming who we, the people, you know, what, what was considered we, the people is not the same today as it was at the beginning Mm. of this still fairly young experiment called American democracy. Now that doesn't mean it just happens, you know, that you can just say, Oh, it's going to happen anyways. No, that means a lot of people have been working toward these things. What does love look at like as public ethic for a long time and I'm not the resistance. I'm mm. I'm with the better, kinder world that's already here, and, mm-hmm. and coming.
0: Yeah, you're moving. You're moving with the evolutionary process. What's
1: resisting is something that would take us back, that would move that better, kinder world backwards. Like I said, that's been a reframe for me. That's been really powerful. I'm not a part of a resistance. I'm part of the better, kinder world, and it's here and it's coming.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm.
1: so I just need to keep on giving what I have to give what's my piece of the puzzle in this on a rededicating daily basis. and I yeah. know, I think sometimes too, we, we've talked about hope in this and uh, this podcast on different occasions, but that idea that you know, this is when hope is risky, and this is where hope is heartbreaking because um you get up. And you try to live your life in a way and make your contribution, um, and hope toward that better world that's here and coming. And then you do it again, and you do it again, and then there's a day, and you you're looking at the news, and your heart is broken. It's just broken. And then you get up the next day and you do it again.
0: hmm Yeah. That's where yeah, exactly.
1: That's when hope is
2: risky. Yeah.
0: And that, yeah, it's kind of where I the really rubber meets the road. You know, you've take, taken this back to to yourself and what goes on in your heart and how to work with your heart. That's where I need to keep taking it too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I was just again, you, what you say makes me think always and I was thinking about the fact that as I get closer to age 80, it's so clear to me that it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at mm-hmm. all.
2: Yeah.
0: It's better to have loved and had my heart broken than never to have loved at all. It's better to have hoped and been disappointed than to never have hoped at all. Um, and, and so, you know, we, we talk about these as risks that we're taking and yet the greater risk is to live a less-than-human life yeah. Yeah. by not living out of love, hope, faith, trust. The more we can live out of those things, the more we create those things in the world. These are self-fulfilling prophecies. I suspect we're coming near the end of our podcast time um, and thought maybe we could take one more step and say a little bit about maybe daily practices we have Uh, mm -hmm. that um, cultivate these virtues in ourselves in order that we are more likely to be able to offer them up to the world. Um, In my case, um, well, listening to Carrie Newcomer songs and the the songs of of other people like that, and, you know, singing along with them sometimes, which I'm glad you can't hear, and uh, other people can't hear, but I do my best. Uh, <laughs> oh, and, and, and also, you know, reading poetry, um, which I think for both of us is a very important spiritual discipline. Throughout this conversation, I've been thinking about a poem by Marge Piercy, a great poet and a, a very strong feminist voice for gosh I don't know 40 years now. She has a poem called The Low Road. It is in many ways a very accurate description of how movements of love get started but what's with me at the moment is is, are some of the last words in that poem. Uh, Referring to movements that change the earth Marge Piercy says something like this it begins when you say we and know who you mean, and each day you mean one more. I, I love the human scale nature of that, that yeah. That, that, that I'm, I'm part of a community of people who don't, who don't totally agree politically, who aren't defined along party lines, but who share this aspiration for a, a public ethic of love, or at least a, a society of more kindness and more compassion and more embrace of what it means to be human. That's the we that I'm part of. It's easy for me to identify certain people in that we. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. Easy for me to say Carrie Newcomer is part of that. Valerie Carr is part of that. Uh, uh, Richard Rohr is part of that. It's uh, people I know. Alison Quantz. Alison Al- Quantz is part of that. And, and it's easy for me to do that. And, and each day I need to say, who's the one more person? that I need to add to that list, Uh, a neighbor who doesn't agree with me politically, a a colleague whom I'm starting to understand, even though for years I couldn't understand. Um, and, And so reading poetry like that, I find, opens my heart in a way that political science textbooks or ideological screeds do not they they may satisfy the ego that wants to have a fight, but they do not satisfy the soul, that wants to occupy this world fully and deeply, yeah. and let in as much of the world as as possible.
1: I think that's 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 wonderful. I mean, I I I so uh, resonate with what you're saying that that and, and that's a beautiful poem, and yes, poetry and reading poetry and music and art. Uh, are one of those places where uh, I can stay in contact with uh, my soul's imperatives. You know, in terms of practice, I think for some of us, there's this thing that that gets into the mix that if I'm if I'm taking care of myself, if I'm if I'm doing my internal work, you know, my centering, my grounding, that that's somehow selfish, and that I should be out there on the line every second of the day, you know, because. There are a lot of sorrows in this world, and there's a lot of stuff to work on. I've I've felt that that call, you know, and I've felt that urgency, the fierce urgency of now,
2: and mm-hmm.
1: and balancing that with um, how do I do my daily practice? Remind myself again of the things that allow me to continue um, working for the better, kinder world. Um, you know, if I'm not spending any time with um, people I love uh, laughing, you know, it, the, mm-hmm. the things that we enjoy that that make life good. It's like, mm-hmm. this is what we're going to need. We're going to need everything we love. We're going to need everything that holds us together um, in life-giving ways uh, to continue working toward, you know, that more perfect union. Um you know, I, I, I think that daily practice, that balancing of how do I take action today in the outer world, but how do I continue to maintain a sense of, you know, who I am, what my soul uh, needs to maintain hope, maintain a sense of uh, grounding in that, that love instead of fear, love mm-hmm. instead of... Anger and hate, you know. Not that I don't get angry. I think that's another thing I, I we should say too. You know, there's also this this thing that if you're a spiritual person, you should never get angry. You know, you're kind hmm. of you're you're not enlightened yet. But no, I don't think that's quite true. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Uh, now we've talked about self righteous anger and righteous anger as being two different things too. But right. but that idea of uh, what happens when your soul goes? This is this is unjust. This is wrong. that 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 anger that comes from that, uh, and then choosing what I do with it. You know, there's a Zen koan that you know I can hold it like coals in my hands, you know. But the mm-hmm. only person it hurts is me, really. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I can drink my anger like rat poisoning, thinking mm-hmm. and and as Anne Lamont would say, and then waiting for the rat to die. You
2: know, rats just fine, (laughs)
1: you know, Um, (laughs) and the person who (laughs) sold you the rat poisoning is just fine. So, so, you know, this idea of what do I do with that? That's, you know, honors it for what it is uh, in terms of uh, being a human, being a human that's in this, um, but also honors what do I do with it? What is the right. most life-giving, healthy thing to do with this? I can. It can go out for me in a thousand shards like shrapnel. Um, it can. I can hold it like hot coals in my hands, or I can transform it into something life-giving.
0: Right, and the ironic. I think the ironic thing is that a lot of us who want to do good in the world do not take good care of ourselves. Yeah. As you're, as you were saying, we we regard that as a form of selfishness and and yet one of the convictions that you and i share that i that is very important to me is that anything we can do to take care of true self not not ego self yeah not not the back patting self not the aren't i heroic self not the superman or superwoman self but anything we can do to take care of true self is ultimately being done on behalf of other people yes because if you're not operating from true self if you're not operating from what Socrates called an examined life you're doing harm in the world and you're doing harm to yourself so that whole movement of breathing and stepping back and and then returning to the fray with new eyes new ears new sensibilities and and a more open heart seems to me uh, as you were just suggesting, to be to be absolutely critical. And laughter is part of that. I, yeah. I've been thinking a lot, as you know, we just finished a, a wonderful first Growing Edge retreat with 24 wonderful people on the shores of Lake Geneva. And I remember at some point talking there with the group uh, that you and I were co-facilitating about a saying that Was said to be a favorite of John Kennedy's. It comes, I was surprised to learn, from the Upanishads. Um, The saying goes like this There are three things that are real God, human folly, and laughter. The first two are beyond our comprehension, (laughs) so we must do what we can with the third. And I think one of the things that we do to take care of ourselves is to is to laugh at the human condition our condition first of all Uh, not at other people but with other people Um, and let the the release provided by humor as well as music and art and meditation and and all these other good things we've talked about to let that kind of uh, give us, uh, make us clearer in, in heart and take us beyond fear.
1: And I, I think as we can close the podcast, I think that's a really important kind of final thought, this idea of laughter. Uh, and I, I think we've been finding a lot of that in this podcast and this whole, uh, the work we've been doing with the growing edge with the people we're meeting and encountering with it, the, um, uh, you know, what we're doing in terms of creative pursuits and, and the retreats we're we're holding now. But, you know, this idea of an easy laughter, not just yuck yuck or uh, forced laughter, but but that genuine loveliness, the kind of lovely laughter that happens between people and friends who are working together and living together. So um so yeah, I think that's a great quote, you know. So we must do it with the best we can with that last one uh, a little bit of laughter
0: yeah the kind that comes from joy and uh, with the community that we're building here I think and that's it's helping to illumine us there's a lot of joy
1: there is yeah there is and it's, it's good to remember that you know mm-hmm. it's good to remember that right now
0: You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer.
1: Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. We'll be having our first guest, a wonderful poet that both Parker and I are so excited to be in conversation with, Naomi Shiab Nye.
0: And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com. So you can join in the conversation too.
1: And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review at iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation.
0: All the music you heard in today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change.
1: And wild appreciation for Alison Kwan's for creative envisioning, direction, production, and for bringing in the new world.